and uh, you're going to be strengthened and encouraged as a result of it. If you have your Bibles, I want you to get them out and turn to Acts chapter 4. That's our focus for tonight. And let me uh, put my a computer password in. Acts chapter 4, and we're studying through, uh, continuing tonight in the book of Acts. And uh, um, Acts chapter 4, the reason we're studying the Acts of the Apostles, looking at the New Testament church, we're actually looking at the Acts of the Holy Ghost through the Apostles and the New Testament church. But what we see when we study the book of Acts is a picture, a pretty clear picture of how the church should be functioning today. And as we look at it, it gives us direction and inspiration and uh, steers us as to how to adjust our priorities. Now, one thing that uh, as you look at the early church in the book of Acts, there are a lot of things that they lacked that um, many ministries depend on today. They didn't have it. But many ministries depend on, for instance, a big budget, big donors, pastors with credentials from the highest-ranking schools, endorsements of political figures and so forth. They didn't have any of that. They didn't have any of that. Uh, in fact, a lot of them had spent time in jail. They probably wouldn't be ministers. They, they might even be able to be members of most churches. Uh, but the, the thing that set them apart and the secret of their success is, their, is the theme tonight that comes up that emerges in Acts chapter 4, and it's this. Here's what we're going to talk about. The early church knew how to pray so that God's hand could work in mighty power. The early church knew how to pray in such a way that God's hand could work and do miraculous things. So uh, let me just say a quick word of prayer and you can be seated. Heavenly Father, speak to us tonight as we go verse by verse through chapter 4. God, let the word be alive to us and let it give us hope inspiration, and direction as believers that are growing spiritually through the meat of the word. We thank you for it and your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. Amen. So uh, the emphasis or focus that the church, the early church knew how to pray, St. Augustine said it this way, and this is something that I think is important for us to capture, is St. Augustine said, pray as though everything depended on God. And work as though everything depended on you. Pray as though everything depended on God. And work as though all of it depends on you. So when we pray, it's our response to God's great ability and it energizes us to do the work of God and to be involved in any spiritual battles that might take place. So as we begin in chapter 4, the focus again is on the power of the name of Jesus, just like chapter uh, number three, and we're going to look at three groups in Acts chapter four uh, who had to encounter the name of Jesus and what they did with the name. So the first thing as we begin to read at verse number one, we're introduced to the persecution of the church, the very first exposure to persecution because of the miracle that Peter and John performed on this beggar by the gate beautiful. And uh, when the people gathered around, amazed at the miracle, Peter preached the second message in the New Testament church. And many people uh, were moved and impacted by that message. And uh, so um, as we begin Acts chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And they spake unto the people, as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple 
And the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Uh, You notice that it says the Sadducees. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe that a person would live after they died. That's why they were so sad, you see. And uh, they did not believe in resurrection from the dead. And so when these guys were preaching that Jesus had raised from the dead, that was battle lines drawn. It says, and they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. That's a big revival, wouldn't you say? Uh, A single man receives a miracle, and now there are 5,000 added to the church. So this tells, this is the story here, uh, just a quick snapshot of the first persecution of God's people in the New Testament church, the first of many persecutions as the church was being born. And uh, so the Sadducees were especially offended by the message that Jesus had rose from the dead. And uh, as we begin to read about the trial here uh, that they put Peter and John through, Uh, they had an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. So as we begin here with verse 5, the Bible says, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest. This was the Sanhedrin. Everybody say Sanhedrin. They were all there. They were gathered together at Jerusalem, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? So the story is, uh, Peter and John were teaching people about Jesus after the miracle, and there were a ton of folks that were believing in Jesus because they saw the miracle, and they believed then that he was the Messiah. And so uh, these religious rulers didn't know what to do, so they held the, uh, Peter and John overnight and then brought them out to trial the next day. And uh, So when they brought them out to trial, all the Sanhedrin is there. Now think about this. This is the same exact group of people that just a few months prior to this had convicted and condemned Jesus Christ to death. And here they are again, facing these ignorant, unlearned fishermen who just performed a miracle that was undeniable in the middle of all these people and everybody's gathering around trying to find out what's happening and many people are believing And so uh, this Sanhedrin, this court, the purpose for the Sanhedrin and all these people that were mentioned was to protect the Jewish faith. And anybody that became a popular teacher or any teaching that was presented, they were supposed to examine the teacher and the teaching honestly. Now, they weren't supposed to throw people in prison like they had just done, but they were supposed to give an honest appraisal of the teaching to see if it measured up or aligned with the Jewish faith. And so they asked, they said, we see this miracle that you did, and our question is, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And Peter responded in verse 8, verse number 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. 
And so, here on this day, here's this man standing also as a witness. And, and this Sanhedrin came in and out of the temple. So there's no question that it's very likely that they had seen this man before. They had, may, may have given him alms on the way in. They may have said a, 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 a little prayer over him over the years. And here this well-known man is standing before them, and they said, how did you do this? Peter said, I don't know why we're being examined for doing a good deed, but if that's the case, then let me make it clear to you. It's through the power of the name of Jesus, who you guys crucified, who God raised from the dead. Now, I want you to notice, this is pretty bold, right? Because the disciples, the, uh, uh, Peter and John, are standing there, they're in custody at the mercy of these people, and Peter said, it's the name of the guy that you very publicly crucified. It's because of the power of his name that this man's standing here. The miracle that, you, that you're asking about and everybody is, is talking about, it's because of the name of Jesus, the one that you guys crucified. Now, I want you to notice that the reason Peter, Peter responded like this is not just because he was a courageous, edgy personality, but the Bible says Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them. Peter spoke through the power of the Holy Ghost. And, and we know that he had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit sometime earlier on the day of Pentecost, but it says he was filled with the Holy Ghost. That didn't mean he received it for the first time that day, but the Bible teaches that after you receive the baptism of the Spirit, that we are to be filled with the Spirit over and over again, just like I drove my uh, uh, truck in here, was running late, so I drove in on fumes. It needs to be filled with gasoline, and some of us spiritually are that way. We, we, We were baptized in the Spirit a long time ago, and we're saved, but we need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but we filled with the Spirit. It's the will of God. If you want to be empowered by God, if you want to speak on behalf of God, if you want to be used by God, you must be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen? And so Peter explained to them how the miracle happened. When Peter said this man was healed by the name of Jesus, it must have pierced through the hearts of those council members who had been the very ones to put him to death. And when the, he said, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, that was a direct challenge to the beliefs and the values of the Sadducees who did not believe in resurrection. And then in verse number 11, it says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. What is Peter doing here? Peter's taking an Old Testament verse, Psalm 118, verse 22, and he is being prompted again by the Holy Ghost to bring this prophecy of the Messiah from the Old Testament and liken it to these men that day. He's saying, in essence, uh, you remember when David said the stone that the builders rejected is the head of the corner? I want to tell you today that the rock is Jesus, the one that you crucified, and you are the builders that rejected him, but God's going to set him up as the head of the corner. See, sometimes when you find out what the Bible's really saying, you're like, wow, wow. These fishermen are standing in front of the most educated men, most powerful men, influential religious leaders, and saying, you guys rejected the stone. You guys rejected the rock that followed Moses, and water came out of it. You rejected the rock. 
You're the builders that rejected it. And uh, these experts would have known exactly what the stone reference was pointing to. The rock was Christ. And in verse 12, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He says, There is not salvation in any other name. There's no name under heaven that you must be saved by. Everybody say, saved by the name. Verse 12 says, there's not salvation. Anybody else? There's no other name that you can be saved. And so what he's saying here is, the conversation wasn't about salvation. It was about this man that was healed. But as we talked about last week, the healing of this beggar was very uh, much likened to salvation because in verse number nine, remember we read in verse nine, it says uh, that by the name of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you whole. The word that's translated whole there is the same word in verse 12 that's translated as saved. It's the same Greek word. So what it's saying is, is when a person is saved, when salvation comes, it means wholeness and spiritual health. Because I want to tell you that there can be sickness and disease and pain and suffering that comes to the human body, but the greatest sickness is sin. And Jesus, the great physician, is the only one that can heal this sin. He is saying the worst thing that can ever happen to somebody is not that they would lose their sight or that their ankle bones would would lose their strength or that a sickness and a disease would come upon upon their body but sin is the greatest sickness and there's nobody else no other name that a person can be made spiritually whole by and when we're saved it's not just a matter of getting our ticket to heaven but God's plan is to make us spiritually whole and that can only happen through the power of the name of Jesus somebody needs to help me lift up the name of Jesus right now there's nothing like the power In the name of Jesus. So he said, you were saved. You can only be saved by the name. Just like it was his name through faith in his name that made this man whole. I told everybody that yesterday. And he's saying in essence to them, but I want you to know right now that this same name can make you spiritually whole, can save you. And so I think it's pretty awesome when you think about the name. That's what chapters 3 and 4, it's about exalting the name of Jesus. And that's what Peter is doing here with the name of Jesus. He is exalting and defending the name of Jesus because these men are rejecting the name of Jesus and they try to counteract the name of Jesus. But the, the apostle lifts up the name of Jesus. He says, you're saved by the name. And that makes perfect sense because look what the Bible says in Matthew 1, 21 and 23. It says, she shall bring forth a son. The angel is saying this. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's saying, call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. He's not just randomly saying stuff. That'd be like, here's your baby boy. Call him Rocky, because he's going to have some big guns. There's a reason why you call him that. It said, call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Now, that just sounds like a, just something pouring out of a, uh, uh, just a sentence. And, and, unless you look at, listen to it in their language because 
Jesus, they said it Yahshua, which Yah is short for Yahweh, and Shua means salvation. So what did Yahshua or Jesus mean? It meant Jehovah Savior. Amen. Call his name Jehovah Savior because he shall save the, the, his people from their sins. And so he would say, there's no other name that a person can be saved by other than Yahshua, other than Jesus, other than Jehovah is our Savior. Come on, somebody. Help me lift up the name of Jesus. 2,000 years later, it's still the same. There's only one way that people can be made whole. There's only one way that people can be saved, and it's through the power of the name of Joshua, of the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. And we know in the Bible it says every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible teaches this powerful principle that all the fullness of God was revealed through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, it says of Jesus, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all. It's speaking of Jesus here. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, not a portion of God, not a third of God, the might, the fullness of God manifest in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 says it this way, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. And you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. That's why when you say Jesus, you've said it all. There's no other name that's ever been uttered or ever will be uttered that has power to save you. But the name of Jesus is preeminent. It is all-powerful. That's why when you face sickness, you can speak Jesus. That's why when your car is careening out of control, you speak the name Jesus. That's why when you're facing a difficult situation and you don't know where to turn, you speak the name Jesus, and it's preeminent. It's above all names. I want to remind us today who Jesus is and the power that's in the name of Jesus oh hallelujah hallelujah I, I love the, the phraseology of that verse if you can put that up again Colossians 2 9 uh, the apostle said the apostle Paul said it this way for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily now look at this I, I don't, when you look at the word of God things are not in there just randomly or by accident so look you could take the word all, and you could take the word the fullness, and just say, for in him dwelleth the Godhead bodily. And it means the same thing, right? In Jesus Christ dwelleth the Godhead bodily. But the apostle Paul wanted to make sure we got this message. So he said, not only, let, let me just reinforce this for you here now. In him dwelleth all the Godhead bodily. And if that's not enough, in him dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I want to remind you today that Jesus is the mighty God. 
God revealed to mankind through the flesh. That's why we worship Jesus. That's why we worship him as the mighty God in Christ. Praise God. Amen. Let's jump to verse 13 in, in Acts there. Acts chapter 4. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Let me just say here, this council is in a bad spot, really. They had Jesus killed, and here are these unlearned men who performed a notable miracle on a very public figure and the guy's standing right there. They're kind of trapped. They can't deny the obvious miracle. They can't say, oh, he's propped up with steel. It's, that's not real. He, he, this, is a, this is a figment of your man. They could not deny the obvious miracle right in front of them and they couldn't explain how these ignorant men, these unlearned men, these people who had no uh, 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 they had no standing within the intellectual elite or the religious leaders. They were just outsiders. How could they have performed this? And the Bible says when they saw the boldness, they, they marveled at the boldness of these men because they know, hey, these guys are prisoners of our mercy, but they're not afraid to say exactly what they believe. And I want to tell you today that these men had been changed by the power of the Holy Ghost. And, and I want to just say thank you, Lord, because many of us, all of us, have elements of our character that disqualified us from being useful in the kingdom of God. But the Holy Ghost transforms and changes us. This was not the same. Think about this. This is the same guy who when the lady said, you're one of them, I saw you. He said, I never saw him, blankety-blank woman. Leave me alone. Denied Jesus three times just a few weeks before. But when he got the Holy Ghost, this same guy is standing before the Sanhedrin. Standing before the, not, not some woman by the fire who's accusing him, but by the most powerful religious leaders in the land and saying, hey, let me tell you, the guy that you crucified is the reason that this man is standing here today. They were changed through the power of the Holy Ghost. This is not the same. It's the same John who was uh, jockeying for position. He's like, I want to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now all of that's behind him because of the power of the Holy Ghost, because the Spirit of God changes us. And when we're full of the Spirit, it transforms the way we interact and, and gives us power to be used powerfully, amen, by God. So, they, and, and another thing, notice they weren't even defending themselves. They weren't trying to defend themselves. They were making a defense of the gospel. So the verdict, in, uh, starting in verse 15, this is the council opposing the name of Jesus. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. We're in a tough spot. What can we do? But here's the thing. Like, think about this. These guys are like, there's been a notable, notable miracle. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. What can we do with these guys? We've got to stop this message. What can we do? And my question is, why don't you guys explore to see maybe this is the truth? You thought about that? Why are you so dead set? Because the reality is, is they were not seeking the truth. They were looking for a way to avoid the truth. Isn't it true that some people 
aren't interested in truth. They can be shown evidence and they can see the power of God. And instead of exploring it or giving it an audience, they start immediately trying to find ways to avoid truth. I wonder if the Sanhedrin had honestly considered the evidence and humbly listened to the message whether they might have been saved that day. But out of the pride and the hardness of their heart, instead they tried to come up with a way to avoid the truth. That's the power of religious tradition. So their conclusion, verse number 17, says we, we, we can't deny the miracle, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in, his, in this name. So they called him back in, and they commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. So their desire was, let's just let this thing die a natural death because there's too much publicity and the miracle's obvious. So if we punish these guys for it, we're going to have an outcry on it. All Jerusalem knows about this miracle now. So what they did is they threatened the disciples and forbid them to preach and teach, said, we'll take you into custody again if you do this again. I think it's interesting that these men the same men that crucified Jesus. Now let's ask the question, who was it that really wanted Jesus crucified? Satan. Who did he use? These hard-hearted religious lackeys. So here, think about this. Who do you think is working through these same men now? Satan. Guess what Satan wants to do? He wants to silence the witness. He wants to shut down the spread of the message. I can't deny the power of God. But maybe we can intimidate them into no longer sharing this with anybody. Satan has been trying to silence God's people since the church was born. Think about this. He's been trying to silence people. And this shows how much Satan fears the witness of the church. I want to tell you today, that's the thing that Satan fears, is when the church is out talking about Jesus, teaching about Jesus. They, they didn't care. Go, go work your miracles, do whatever you want to. But don't talk about Jesus. Don't share the name. Don't witness about They wanted them silenced. You know why? Because Satan wants our witness silenced. And from the very beginning of the church, he's been trying to silence the church. And unfortunately, he's been successful in a lot of people's lives, getting us silenced. But I want to tell you, I just feel in my spirit, I'm really, really full of faith and expectation of what God's getting ready to do among this church, within this church, within this body of believers. We've already seen tremendous results with what's been happening with life studies being taught throughout the community and throughout this region. Testimonies every day. We received a testimony today of people whose lives are being impacted by the ministry that Brother Simeon is doing, teaching life studies. But I'm telling you right now that I really, I really feel that something's getting ready to explode among us when the rest of us realize how much power the name of Jesus has 
And if we'll allow ourselves to be witnesses of the name of Jesus, you may say, well, I can't teach like Simeon. Well, most people can't. But there are ways that he's going to share with us that we all can get involved in being a part and being a witness of Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited about it, I can hardly contain myself because I know what God's getting ready to do among us and through the church. But notice this. Please be aware. If there's one uh, priority of Satan, it is to silence God's people. And he's been successful with a lot of Christians. But look at, let, let's continue, verse 19. Then Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye. Kind of sassy, isn't it? For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Are we supposed to pretend like it didn't happen? What do you want me to do? Pretend like I didn't used to be a drug addict, but God delivered me? What am I supposed to do? Pretend like my child wasn't sick and God raised him or her up? Come on. What am I supposed to do? Just be quiet about it? And so Peter respectfully and courteously defied their ruling. And this was not just civil disobedience to promote a cause, but this was a deep conviction, kind of like the three Hebrew children, remember? They were told to bow down. They said, we can't do that. We respect you, king, but we can't uh, deny what God is doing. And Daniel, uh, they said, don't pray to anybody but the king. But Daniel still opened up his window and prayed three times a day. And that's what Peter and John were doing. They said, we respect what you guys have to say, but we got to obey God here. And it's not just to be obstinate or different, uh, uh, but God is prompting and directing us. Uh, Amen. So when they further had threatened them, they let them go. Verse uh, verse number 20, I believe it is. They, They further had threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them, Because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. Amen. Think about this. A miracle happened that nobody could deny. Everybody in the city is saying, look what God has done. Look what God has done. And the ones that were there and raised the man up is saying, guess what? It was the name of Jesus, the one that was crucified. That's why this man is standing here. And all of a sudden, all these people were saying, he must have been the Messiah. That must have been the Messiah. And throughout all of Jerusalem, the church was burgeoning with growth. Come on, this is the brand new baby Pentecostal apostolic church. Nothing they could do. Nothing they could do. Uh, could punish them because of the people for all the men glorified God. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Everybody knew who he was. Nothing they could do as the Sanhedrin but to try and threaten and silence them. And in their case, thank God, it didn't work because the church grew and Satan's attempts to silence the church only made their witness stronger. Praise God. Nudge your neighbor, look at him and say, finally, what does that mean? This is my last point, okay? Finally, point number three. So what happens last? We're going to go through verse 31 here. So they were arrested. They were brought in for the trial. Peter defended the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the council, tried to do everything they could to stop it. So once they released Peter and John out of custody, they went back towards the other believers and had a Pentecostal prayer meeting. They had a spirit-filled prayer meeting. 
because the apostles had defended the name, the council had tried to stop the name, and the church began to call on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this prayer meeting that we're going to read about right now, the last thing, is one of the huge, most massive concentrations of power in Jerusalem that day. And as we read this prayer, it's one of the truly great prayers ever recorded in Scripture. There's not a whole lot of prayers that are recorded. This is a powerful one. And this may be one you haven't looked at before as a guide to prayer, but check it out. This prayer that they prayed when they got together with the other believers after they were released from prison was a prayer that was born out of, don't miss this now, of witness and service to the Lord. Peter and John were coming right out of the trenches. They had battle scars on them. They had been witnessing. They had been serving God. And then they had a prayer meeting. See, the problem is, have you ever been to prayer meetings that are real weak? No, Pastor, I never did anything. Prayer meetings were like, man, there's no power flowing here. What is the matter? See, uh, I'm talking about times where there's a, a prayer time, but there's, little, there's very little sense of urgency and there's no sense of danger. You know why? Because people are just kind of sauntering in from their comfortable Christian walk and praying. But I want to tell you, when more of us get involved like Peter and John in witnessing, soul winning, and discipleship in our daily lives, when we finally do get together for prayer times, there's going to be urgency and power in the prayer meetings. When we just live in our life and get together and say, let's pray now. No power, no urgency, no danger. But when we've been out fighting the fight, when we got the devil mad, and then we get together and we're on purpose, we're on mission, those prayer times are going to be marked with power and urgency and demonstration. And as it says here, the place was shaken where they were sitting when they began to pray. Amen. What happens? What happens in our church when we have several people that are involved during the week in discipling people, in loving people, in reaching people, encouraging people, when we finally do get together and begin to pray, it's going to be some powerful concentrations of spiritual power, concentrations of the Word of God. Amen? Hallelujah. Acts, verse number 23 in the first part of 24, it says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Look at this. They have a prayer meeting. Everybody gets in one accord again. Guess what happened last time they got in one accord? I don't know, Pastor. Look at Acts chapter 2. They were all in one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house. They get back together again. Peter and John said, this is what they told us. They told us not to witness or preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. We had to spend the night in jail. I never thought I would spend the night in jail. And they told us to be silent. But there's all these people believing. And the Bible says that they lifted up their voice in one accord. Just like Acts chapter 2, they had a unity of purpose, one heart and one mind. And when we get together, when we're united in the purpose that God has called us to do, God is pleased to answer us when we pray. Amen. 
Because division hinders prayer and robs us of power. With that in mind, wouldn't you think that the enemy would do anything he could play on weaknesses that we have to try to create disunity within the body because when there's division, it hinders prayer and it robs us of power. And when we are in one accord, there is an unstoppable concentration of power. And and as you read here, the house was shaken. Verse 24b through 30, uh, it says here, and said, Lord, thou art God. They begin to pray with one accord which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do what whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servant with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Let's look at that verse for a minute right there. Let's look at this passage. First of all, when they begin to pray, They lifted up their voice and they began to quote Psalm chapter 2. They began to quote David the psalmist saying, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Why did the kings of the earth stand up and the rulers, why did they gather against the Lord and against his Christ? In in this particular uh, uh, Psalm chapter 2, it's talking about the revolt of nations against the Lord and his crowning of a new king. Perhaps it was even David that there were other vassals and powerful people who had to submit to the new king. And and what David was writing here is this is God's anointed king. What are they raging about? Why are they rising up against it? Don't they know that the will of God is ultimately going to be done? But here I want you to notice that they use the word in their prayer. And I think it's important to pray the word. To pray the word. You know why? Because in the word, God tells us what he wants us to do. And in prayer, we make ourselves available to accomplish what he's asked us to do. So when we pray, we pray the word of God. And what happens is, is God's will is done on earth. This is the purpose of prayer. Sometimes we think that the purpose of prayer is to get our will done in heaven. But when we learn to pray the word, we get God's will done on earth. We understand that God has a plan. God's in control. That's what they were saying here. As they begin to pray, they said, the adversary of the king when he was anointed during the time of David or one other other king, whoever it was, said their energy and their opposition to God's plan was in vain. Why are they raging? Why are they making a lot of noise? Don't they know that God's sovereign and his will is going to be done ultimately? And they said, while they were praying, they said, uh, those that are adversaries of what Jesus has done, the new king that's been anointed is the Sanhedrin, 
is the, the Gentiles, is Pilate, is Herod himself. All of these adversaries, don't they understand that the will of God is going to be done anyway? When God crowns a king, I don't care how much you rage, you can't uncrown him. What they were saying in essence is this, God's will is going to be done. One thing we know is that the will of God is going to be done. So God, we're not asking you to get rid of our adversary. We're not asking you to torch the Sanhedrin. We're not asking you to dethrone Herod. What we're asking you to do is give us power in the midst of this situation to heal people and to witness the truth. Praise God. What a powerful prayer. They applied the message of David to their own situation. They said, our adversary is Herod. The adversary of Jesus is Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews. They all ganged up on Jesus and they crucified him. But just like those that opposed the new king in Israel vainly, the opposition of the kingdom of Jesus is just as futile. So we might as well rejoice because I read the back of the book and we win. God's in control. He's sovereign. And we don't have to have him make a situation that's more comfortable for us. But God empower us to be used the way that you want to use us. Amen. See, they believed in God's sovereignty. They believed that God had a plan for the church and the plan was being fulfilled. But we also see that even though they trusted that God's will was going to be done, that they did not see this as eliminating their responsibility. And I just, I'll talk, this is, as we close it up here, sometimes we feel, or maybe it's just me, we become so comfortable in the fact that God's in control and the will of the king's going to be done in the end anyway that we don't understand our responsibility as well. These apostles were saying, we know that Jesus was crowned by the mighty God and God's will is going to be done ultimately. It doesn't matter who rages against him. We know that he's going to win. But in the meantime, we're out spreading the message and we're gathering together and praying for empowerment because we know there are two things that are working together. The power of God and his power flowing through us. That's the will of God for him to do this great work and for us to be partners together with him. Amen? I believe that we lose power, potentially that we have as individuals and as the church, when we overemphasize the sovereignty of God or when we overemphasize our responsibility. Listen to me, guys. I'll just, this is free. I'm going to throw this in. The most powerful churches, well, let me say it this way. Churches make a mistake when they veer off one way or the other. I've seen churches who all they focus on is God doing his thing. And so, when you go to a church like this, the chairs are crooked. When you arrive, nobody's there to greet you. There's junk laying around on the floor. I'm not talking about always, but I'm just giving you a mental picture here. Because they say, well, we don't have a part in this. We're going to get together, and we're going to let God do his thing. And so people come in, they're not greeted, they're not taken care of, there's no follow-up. 
There's no intentionality. There's no systems in place. It's just we're going to let God do his thing. And let me tell you, there's something that's lost when we depend solely on the sovereignty of God. And then I see people that go off the other way. And because they learn that with human effort, these are the kind of churches that when you go to them, everything is awesome. They have greeters. You feel like you're coming into energy, into what can we do to make this thing go? But then throughout the service, you never have an encounter with God. Because I believe right here, I believe that the apostles understood that the Shazam moment, the power, is at the nexus of what God is doing. And when we line up as responsible members of the mission with the power of God, and understand it's not through our effort, and understand it's not just us sitting back and let God do his thing, but when we, it's like, a, like when these two wires come together, it's like zzz, there's power. And when what we can do comes together with what God can do, and we say, you know what, we're going to do our very best uh, to be a witness, uh, to be prayerful, to make sure that we accommodate people, amen, to make sure that we do what we can do, but at the same time, we're going to have the engine of this church churning and burning, understanding that when people come into this house, uh, if they leave the same way that they came, then the will of God has not been done. God's got to show up. We've got to give space. In fact, our plans can be tossed out the window but at the same time we understand that at the nexus of our responsibility and God's sovereignty is powerful revival somebody praise the Lord so as I said from the beginning pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on us see Simeon when he does the life studies. I know the gift of faith is an operation. I know the gifting as a teacher is an operation. I know that God's word begins to work. But guess what? Somebody has to climb into their car 30 minutes before the study, drive through traffic in L.A., get there, focus his mind, and prepare to deliver the word of the Lord. You know why? Because he realized God's will is to reach this city. And if it's going to happen, it's going to be an act of God. But it's only going to happen when I share in the responsibility, just like the apostles did, of witnessing and praying. The disciples understood, if I share the word, amen, if I'm involved in prayer, then there is power that's manifest. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm over my time here. And when they prayed, they didn't ask for protection. They asked for power. They didn't ask for their enemy to be destroyed supernaturally. They asked for power to preach the word and to heal the sick. Because the greatest desire that they had in their prayer is they wanted boldness in the face of opposition. Boldness. Oh, God, help us right now. I feel the Holy Ghost here right now. I want to remind you that prayer works Believing prayer releases God's power and enables the hand of God to move. That's why we're pushing you to spend an hour in prayer, not so we can fill out a chart, because we know that God's power is released into your life through prayer. And God's answer is in verse 31, the last verse for tonight. 
And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. They got what they prayed for. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. The house was shaken where they were sitting. And they walked out of there with tremendous boldness. So God said, hey, is that your prayer? He said, here's my answer. He shook the place and filled them again with his spirit and gave them the boldest that they needed to continue the work. Amen? And you'll see as you read the following verses as we get back into this in a couple weeks uh, that when they were filled with the spirit, the result was even greater unity among them. That means they... they, they uh, uh, we're able to deal with each other's difficulties because through prayer, you get great power and you get great grace. I know y'all missed that right there. Through prayer, as a church, we get great power and we get great grace. We need great power to reach the world, but we need great grace to deal with each other. And when you have great power and great grace, that equals a great church. Hallelujah. Great power and great grace equals a great church. And that only happens through prayer. And when God's people pray this kind of prayer, and they say, God, I'm not asking you uh, for all the things that I want. And I'm not asking for a comfortable life. And I'm not asking for an easy life. But I'm praying that you'd make me strong enough to deal with whatever opposition is coming. Make me bold enough to face down anything. God, make me who you want me to be. And I want to tell you today, stand to your feet. In 2017, the name of Jesus has not lost any power. No power lossage at all. But many have lost power because they've stopped praying. You know what? This is true. The early church prayed, and God answered with a mighty hand. They prayed. They prayed as if God was doing all the work. But they went out and witnessed as if it was all up to them. Between that prayer and following the prompting and doing the will of God, they were empowered tremendously. The name of Jesus has not lost any of its power. It, it really doesn't matter how long you've been around. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. It doesn't matter if you're recognized or not recognized as a leader within the church doesn't matter. This law still works. If you pray, you get power. If you don't pray, you lose your power. If you pray, you get grace. If you don't pray, you lose your grace. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter how much talent you have, how much know-how. It doesn't matter if they call you pastor. If you stop praying, you lose power. If you're praying, you're in power. And, and I just feel in the Holy Ghost, I, I feel to release something out, out of my spirit into this environment, right? I don't know I don't know how to best do it right now. But God's getting ready to use some of you in ways that you've never imagined possible before. Don't get scared. Don't get fearful. Because through the power of the Holy Ghost, you're going to receive the boldness that you need. Sometimes we're like, God, open the doors for me. And God can do that. But maybe he's like, why don't you try knocking on some? Why don't you try knocking on some? And, and then we'll open it. Amen. Right now, right, I just want to release, I want you to open your spirit right now, and, and I want us to receive what the, word, what the Word has shared with us tonight. In the name of Jesus, in preparation, Lord God, in preparation for what's getting ready to happen in Life Church as 
life studies go nuclear. Not just one or two or three people, Lord God, but all of us working together to be the church throughout the week, to come on Sunday and celebrate what you did through the week, and to go out and be the church through the week. I pray, Lord God, that your word right now would spark friction in our spirit, put faith in us. And I'm praying, Lord God, for somebody right now who you already, you, you already prompted them, you already laid it on their spirit to pray this week, but they've been too busy. But God, right now, you're reminding them again, hey, take that hour. Take that hour. If you have to set your alarm at 2 a.m., if that's the only way you can do it because of the kids or, or 6 a.m. or whatever it is you have to do, take that hour and spend some time in the Word. Just watch what happens. Watch, 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 watch what happens. Watch how the power of the enemy and the power of the flesh just starts to lose control and the power of the Spirit begins to release in Jesus' name. Amen. Simeon, since you do this all the time, I want you just to pray over it. Lord Jesus, God, we pray by the power of your Spirit. God, I pray that you begin to unlock inside of us, Lord, something powerful here tonight. God, I pray that you'd begin to release our faith, Lord God, right now. God, I pray doors inside of our heart would begin to open in the name of Jesus. That we would stop, dear God, letting fear dictate and trying to control us. But God, I pray in the name of Jesus that boldness would begin to grow inside of us right now in Jesus' name. That we would stop looking at the impossibilities. That we would stop looking at all the closed doors. But I pray, God, that we'd begin to see open doors in our spirit here tonight, Jesus. I pray we'd begin to talk to co-workers, Lord, talk to family members, Lord, and believe for great and mighty things. God, with you, Lord, all things are possible. All things are possible, Lord, to them that believe. And Lord, we believe tonight in the name of Jesus that God, whatever door man tries to close, God, you can open every single door. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus you begin to anoint us as a church to learn how to pray. In Jesus' name, we pray this week, God, we would step into a new dimension of prayer. And we believe it, God, that this week something's going to break in the Spirit. Something's going to break in the Spirit, God. In the name of Jesus, you're going to open our eyes to see things in a new and fresh way. Lord, we're going to begin to see what you can do, Lord. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your anointing, God. In Jesus' name, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray.